Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Alonzo Bowden. Alonzo first came to your attention on TV as a contestant on the second season of NBC's Last Comic Standing. He famously won the infamous third season, then returned to judge the fifth season. His other screen credits include Showtime's Californication and Scary Movie 4. And he's a fixture at Montreal's Just for Laughs Comedy Festival each July. We talked about his start in comedy and how he keeps working on the next thing, live from the green room of Caroline's Comedy Club in between headlining shows. So let's get to it. Alonzo Bowden, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Welcome to the green room. <laughs> uh, so last things first, Alonzo Bowden, we're in the green room at Caroline's between the first and second show Saturday. Yes. What is the normal between show process for you? Uh, kick back, eat, which I've already done. I usually have dinner between shows on a two-show night, and um, and that's it. We just hang out. I mean, different different places are different things. I think the uh, the worst one is when the green room is the hangout for all the comics in town. Like sometimes you're on the road and you're in a green room and there's 15 people you don't know in there because they're local comics and this is where they hang. Right. That's when you wish you had a road manager to say, all right, get the hell out, but whatever. This green room is a little bit different from you because you're from Queens. I grew up here. Yeah, I grew up in Queens. So whenever I'm here, friends and family drop in. Right now we have my nephew Jelani sitting over there wishing he could borrow money or some shit, little beggar, and my friend Melanie. So, yeah, there's always people. I've had my sister's been here this week and friends I grew up with, yeah. Now, also, I have to mention this. Uh, I feel like I'm taking you away from, from a skill, a uniquely powerful skill you have that I saw you exhibit in the first show, which was the way you were able to size up that audience well, the first show, we had a bachelor party. And you had three, two, no, two, two bachelorettes and one bachelor. And it's a very big difference. Bachelorette parties can be, they're only annoying when they think they're the only ones in the room and they want to make it all about them and they're squealing and, they, you know, that, that's annoying. But usually bachelorette parties are pretty good. Bachelor parties should not be at comedy shows. They just shouldn't. It's wrong. They shouldn't be here. So whenever I have one, I roast them. It, it was it was a solid rose. Yeah, they they had it coming. <laughs> Grown men in short pants at a comedy show. How 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 quickly can you size up an audience if they're not you know, a party like that? Usually, it's not a matter of sizing up an audience because I'm gonna do my act, so I don't I don't change it much for the crowd um, unless I know something is going on. Like if I if there's definitely something I know going on in the crowd, might be a certain corporate group. Sometimes you do a show. And the club's like, yeah, we got the local ASPCA is having a party, so there's 40 animal lovers in this section or something. Mm -hmm. Then you do something to appease them. But otherwise, I just do the act. Sometimes it's organic. Things pop up during the show. Sometimes I'll talk to the crowd. It's People love when I do it. It's kind of lazy when I do it, but um, but I've developed a talent for it. So Well, the audience loves it because you're pandering to them. Yeah, and it and it makes it a special show for them. It's not your well, regular act. It's also something in the moment. Like last night, there were 
there was a table, they had like three Canadians and they worked in a power plant. And it just became this thing of like Canadian terrorists in an American nuclear power plant. That became the running joke. And those are the kind of things I love because it was funny that night at that show. You can never recreate that. Right. So that's my, my favorite funny is when something's funny in a particular moment because of that moment. But you can't do it again because that's the most creative stuff. The last time I saw you, we were both in Canada. Yes. And you were hosting New Faces, which I've seen you done bef- do before. Yeah, I've hosted New Faces a few times now. Uh, one of the things I really appreciated about the way you handle it is you actually pay attention through the whole show. Well, you don't just go have, up and uh, say the names and give them all a standard intro. Yeah. You actually pay attention to each of them. No, sets. I have a connection in New Faces because that's where I got discovered. Right when I did New Faces in '97, back when they used to make deals, and I was one of the comics that that walked out of New Faces with a deal, so I got a big fat check and uh, I gave up the day job and it, you know like it it basically kickstarted my career. So I'll always have an affinity for New Faces, and I also know although it's changed a lot, but I still try to put them at ease when they do it because they think a lot of them are thinking, oh, this is my whole career. And it's like, no, it's not. It's just a set, you know, especially now, because now it's not as big business as it was. How, how does where you're at now compare with how you thought your career would be? I don't know, um, because I've never had a, and this might have been my problem, but I never had a long-range arc plan for my career. I've always been like the next indicated thing, you know, what's, what's next. So the funniest thing now about where I'm at is I've become one of the old guys. So now young comics come to me for advice and they have questions and they ask me literally word for word the shit I used to ask like George Wallace and George Lopez and Dom Herrera when I was a doorman at the Laugh Factory and I was starting out, you know, and it's almost the same question. So it's kind of it's kind of cool. That's kind of a full circle thing. I had hoped to be rich, kind of missed out on that one. And uh, other than that, still got, you know, a few jokes left. When you were growing up in Queens, what did you dream of doing when you were oh, a kid? Oh, no, no dream of being a comic. I, um, I was a mechanical guy, like taking stuff apart, fixing things. And I ended up in my first career, which was airplane mechanic, which was fun. I liked fixing airplanes, and I liked working with my hands and machinery and all that. So, so that was yeah. literally living out a childhood dream. At the, uh, at no, the time. I don't know. Again, it wasn't so much a childhood dream. It was just something I studied, I learned to do, and it was a good job. But, but I don't know that I had a particular, I can't think back and say I had a particular childhood dream. I mean, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. But once you get past that phase, the only thing that, that I do now that I've always loved is ride motorcycles. That's something I love from my childhood that's still a major part of my life. Did you, did you uh, think about motorcycle racing or no or just no i didn't think about i didn't think about being a racer because i was always too big motorcycle racers are like jockeys they're they're little guys they're tom cruise size yeah smaller even smaller oh. the world champion right now is um a guy named mark marquez who's probably five four 120 to 130 pounds no, they are literally jockeys. Okay. <laughs> so, did you watch the most recent Mission Impossible? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of the uh, motorcycle? It's good. The motorcycle stunts were good. I don't believe Tom Cruise does that. They always say he does them. Now, I know I know people who know him, and I know he's a great rider. Right. But I don't believe that the people who insure a movie 
are going to let the star race around on a motorcycle. It's like because if Tom crashes, mm -hmm. you know, our $150 million production stops. That's why I don't believe it. So it's not that he can't do it. It's mm -hmm. like I don't think they'd let him, <laughs> you know. But, but maybe he does. I don't know. I know they've, I've seen the behind-the-scenes featurettes, and they show him actually strapped onto the plane. There's just a lot of cables that they take yeah, out in CGI. Yeah. Who knows? But, you know. But either way, good for him. Yeah. Good for him. I mean, he's doing Mission Impossible. I'm fucking talking to you. <laughs> you know? So we got that yeah. difference. It's not quite. Nothing personal, Sean. No. Kind of hurt you with that one, didn't I? <laughs> Sean was like, hey, I could talk to Tom Cruise. I could. I could look him right in the <laughs> eye. I could look him right in the eye and talk to him. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your act right now about taking a motorcycle ride across the country. Yeah, that was really cool. It was something I always wanted to do. So I rode, I do shows at a big motorcycle rally called Americade, which is up in Lake George, upstate New York. And this year I rode from L.A. to New York to do that. So it was very cool riding across country. Uh, did you plan a tour out to go between there and there? Or? No, I didn't do comedy along. You mean like did I do work along the way? Yeah, yeah. No, nah, no, nah, I just rode. <laughs> You're in like... I'm the motorcycle comic now. Yeah, no. Nah, some I'm guys not. have a bus. Some guys have a have a nah, private I, plane. I have a motorcycle. I didn't want to. Uh, no, I didn't want to stop and do shows along the way because then you're committed to a schedule, you know. And this way, I could just ride as much as I wanted on any given day. Is that how you plan out your your working schedule? Is is to have no? But and there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of bike events a year. I always plan weekends off to go to. But I don't no, nah, I don't plan my schedule around that. Okay. I work a ton, man. I work all the time. I love working, you know. My business manager says I work too much. But um you know what it, it's like now I'm booking twenty sixteen and you don't think about it. You're just like, Yeah, I'll do that, yeah, I'll do that. Then you get then you realize, damn, I got seven weeks in a row on the road. Like, what the hell was I thinking? But you're not thinking about it when you book it the year before. You're just saying yes. But you have the two uh, bike weeks. Yeah. That you already know. Mm -hmm. Are there any other dates on the calendar that yeah, you're like, I, do, I, I um, have to save those dates? Yeah, I do these great music cruises I love doing, like jazz cruises. So I always book out those weeks um, because I love the music and I love the shows. So that's like four weeks I book out. And other than that, no, other than that, it's just work. Uh, the last time we talked in depth, in fact, you were, you were just taking over some jazz stuff from the Playboy people. Oh, man, that was a long time ago. No, that was one cruise. It was called the Playboy Jazz Cruise because it, it didn't work out because people uh, associated it with Playboy, mm -hmm. and they don't realize that Playboy has a long history of supporting jazz, and the Playboy Jazz Festival is huge in L.A., but on a nationwide basis, people don't know. So people didn't book the cruise because they thought it was going to be a bunch of playmates and you know, swinger parties and stuff like that. They didn't realize it was all about the music. So musically, it was an amazing cruise. Um, Herbie Hancock headlined. Diane Reeves was on. Uh, a guy named Roy Hargrove, amazing trumpet player. Marcus Miller. Um, a guy named Keb Moe a great blues guy. Like, the music was amazing, right. but the cruise didn't sell well. I don't know how they could get that impression with Bill Cosby being long well, associated with... Yeah, Cosby. And jazz. But you you know the thing about Cosby, I mean it's easy to make that joke now, but like nobody knew and nobody suspected, you know, for 50 years. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's really it's um it's a funny thing. This my take on Cosby, it's kind of like 
we know it's true, but people didn't want to believe it, right? Because right. he was so beloved. So I say, you know, you know it's true, but you don't want to believe it. It's like being a Republican every day, you know. It's happened. But, it's happened to so many idols, not just comedically, but yeah, it's because they're people, you know. And and obviously there was something going on with Cosby. I mean, who knows what it was? But it had to be some kind of weird fetish, right? Because it's not like Cosby would have a hard time hooking up with women if it's something he wanted to do. So I don't know. And and now his, you know, his reputation is basically ruined. Um, and it's really weird because it's not like he's. You know, he's still given, you know, who knows how many millions of dollars to the United Negro College Fund, and he's the, the greatest comic in the world for so long, and blah, blah, blah. But this kind of, you know, rape negates all that. So it's it's a strange, it's a strange occurrence. Right, guess, he, he you know? takes your joke too far. Yeah, exactly. The creepy, rapey, exactly. Cosby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, when you were, but back when you were, back to you, when you were a kid in Queens, thinking about being an astronaut and then settling to more sky level with air, mm-hmm. airplanes. Who were you? Li- were you listening to any comedy at the time? No, or? no, it wasn't. This wasn't something I always dreamed of doing it. I'd always been funny. My mom's hilarious. My mom's probably one of the funniest people I know. And I come from a smart ass family. If in my family, if you do something stupid, somebody saw it and they will comment on you. You know, my nephew Jelani, he got the smart ass gene. He used to talk a lot of shit when he was younger. Then I started hitting him, and he shut up. But uh, no, I'm kidding. But um, I didn't think of it because I didn't come. You know, showbiz wasn't on the radar. Showbiz wasn't on the radar until I moved to L.A. I met people who were in showbiz, and that made it more realistic. Who was the first person you met? Um, I met a guy named Patrick Norris, who is now he's a director. He directs one-hour dramas and back then he used to do the wardrobe for a show called 30 something okay and that was a big deal because he basically set the tone for how yuppies dressed in the 80s like 30 something was was the show show. and what happened was they did an episode where they needed a basketball team and he knew i played a lot of basketball so he told me he said hey get four of your friends and come to the forum and they were doing an episode where the two stars of 30-something, they lived in Philly, they had a dream sequence that they were on the 76ers, and we were the opposing team. So it was fun, because I got to play ball with Barkley and uh, Andrew Tony, Mike Jaminski, you know, the actual Sixers at the Forum. So that was cool. So that, yeah, that was like my first, like, oh, this is how this shit works. You and know? that was your first screen credit. That was my first, yeah, that was my first gig. Yeah, basketball player, number two. But that's you know? still not comedy. No, no, stand-up came from when I started training airplane mechanics. I had fun making them laugh, and I decided I wanted to do it. And um, So then what did you do? I took this comedy writing class because I didn't know how comics came up with material. So I took this writing class, and the graduation of the class was a five-minute spot. So I did the five minutes, and I was absolutely hooked. And I just said right then, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to fix airplanes anymore. And I got laid off, which I already knew I was getting laid off. And I made a deal with myself to not go back to aerospace, like work anywhere else. And uh, I fell into a job through a friend of being a truck driver for the kids show Power Rangers. And that was my day job until comedy started paying the bills. How did you how did you first get stage time or that first paid? gig? Oh, you go. You you just go anywhere. You know, if you're a new comic, you get stage time by going to open mics any anywhere from 
coffee shops, back of bars, bowling out. There was a bowling alley used to work at regularly. Um, we used to do these hotel ballroom gigs. This woman had these, uh, her name was Victoria Dushoff, and she had these hotel ballrooms, but it would be a weird gig. Like there was one Wednesday night at a Holiday Inn by LAX, and half the room was German tourists, because the German tourists came in every Wednesday. So half the room didn't understand what you were saying, you know, but that's it. That's what you do because you love doing it and you um, you get good doing it that way because you're doing it in places that it's more difficult. Like it's easy to be like we're at Caroline's on Saturday night. Yeah. This is as easy as comedy will ever get. You have people who paid to come in, sit down and laugh. But when you have a bar half full of Germans who don't know what you're saying, that's when your ass gets funny. So that leads to. I mean, jumping ahead in your career, but to Last Comic Standing, those first seasons were all about crazy yeah, scenarios. Yeah, that was, that was a different, whole different vibe, though, because we were pros. That, that last but, comic but they want to throw you in a laundromat or yeah, medieval but, but no, times. See, the laundromat, the laundromat, that's a regular L.A. gig. That's a regular open mic in L.A. at yeah. the laundromat. That wasn't set up for Last Comic Standing. We just took it over one night. That's what I'm talking about. That's how you get good. You bothering people doing their laundry. Yeah. You know, um, I wasn't there when they did the medieval times and all that. But yeah. they, what they tried to do was put you in situations that were awkward but be funny. But ultimately, it came down to what you did on stage, which was fantastic. Yeah. You know, how how did you get? Who gave you your first road work? Uh, let's see. My first paid gig was with a guy named Tyler Horn, and I'd only been doing comedy like six weeks. And he wanted me to do like 15 up at front, which was great because I only had like seven. <laughs> so I had some writing to do. And then, uh, man, I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Vince Harper was the first guy to take me on the road. He was a road comic from Orange County. And we went to Texas and did what it's called. Uh, it was called a Kendall run. Out west, there are some promoters. I know the Tribble run because yeah. I used to live in the northwest. Okay, well, Ken Kendall. C.W. Kendall was the same kind of thing. He had a, a rooms... You basically did a circle around Texas. You know, you did like Beaumont and, and Lubbock and just small towns going around Texas. So that was the first road gig I did. And what did you learn from that? And uh, I don't know what you, you – there isn't any one thing you learn. The, I'll tell you the, le the early lessons I had. I opened for Tommy Davidson for a summer. I learned a lot opening for Tommy because then I was working with a pro and I got to watch him – work and um this was during in living color or? uh let's see it was right after i think it was right after in living color yeah i think it was right after it it might have been during it might have been the last seasons or whatever but uh, i mean tommy was a major star at that time we i used to laugh because his check i saw his check one time so he got five thousand bucks and i got a hundred dollars just to give you an idea where we were on the scale <laughs> you know but, um, but it was great because I, I worked in A rooms. That was one thing. And you learn, you learn how to work. You learn how to, you learn how to be a pro. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of things you learn when you work. Like now, comics, new comics come to me for the same thing. You just, when you're working with a veteran, you learn shit. It's hard to say any specific thing you learn, but you learn how to do comedy. You learn to be a comic. Do you like to have the same openers or feature acts on the road? No, nah, I mix them up. Um, well, now, you, unless you're established to a certain level, you can't bring features. They don't. One thing that's changed from when I was doing it is they don't provide rooms and stuff like they used to. So oh. now they just use local 
people, you know, in in a, in in the cities. You know what I mean? Um, so sometimes, like when I'm here, I almost always work with Liz because I like working with Liz. And there's a couple other people that I because you try to give them a break, you know. But um, that's why I asked about your first road work is. The well, it was different. Again, it was different yeah. then because then there were more clubs that had like comedy condos and things like that. So they took care of you. They took care of your feature act. So you just said so and so is coming, and they brought them. Now they pay them less, and they, you know, I would when I was on the road as a feature, I would at worst break even, and sometimes I'd leave making a few hundred bucks. Now they would actually lose money going on the road. I mean, if you're going on the road and they're paying you 75 bucks a show and no room, you're you're losing money, you know. So so you can't do that too long or too often. Right. I was talking to Liz Mealy while I was waiting for you, and she was talking about she sells merch and how some some of her road gigs the merch more than makes up for yeah, the deal yeah. that she had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's. I mean, but that's how it how it is. You don't make money if you get in this for the money. You're not going to last long, you know. You, and that was something Tommy taught me. That was something Tommy taught. Me. He said, "Payoffs on the backside." And he said, "Same joke you paid. You got paid fifty dollars to tell. They'll pay you ten thousand dollars for if you make a name for yourself." Yeah. You know, uh, so. So since you're not picking the openers, what's the what's the last kind of opener you want to have? I don't like I don't like dirty you? acts. I don't, you know, only because. I like to do topical stuff, some some politics, uh, social commentary stuff. And if you go behind somebody who's X-rated and dick jokes and stuff, they put the audience in that mode. And then you have to stop them and say, okay, you got to think again. You know, so yeah, those are the acts I don't like working with. And decent bookers won't put you with an act that's wrong, but some do because they don't give a shit, you know. Right, or they have their club favorites. Yeah. Do you have a... Uh do you have a, a, a ritual or a routine that right before you go on stage? Nah, I can go on under any circumstance. Ideally, there's a Starbucks. I'll get coffee, and uh, but that's it. I don't. It, no, I don't have a ritual. I don't have a necessarily have a a um, superstition. I don't have to be quiet before the show, although it's nice. But sometimes I like it if something's going on and I have to go up there because then I can just bring the energy of whatever. I had a car accident once, like minutes before I got to the club. This guy hit my car outside, and then I had to like basically pull over to the side and jump on stage at the Laugh Factory. And then I just did 10 minutes on Bad Drivers and Sunset, and it was hilarious. And I couldn't remember what I said, but in that moment, I was so angry at this guy. You know what I mean? So... I, I like when something like that happens and you have that energy. Do you do you, uh, have any practices to s- keep yourself in the moment? No, I just stay in the moment. Um, Tommy was one, again, I learned a lot from this guy, but he told me once, he said, never think on stage. He said, once you're on stage, either you know it or you don't. And if you don't, you ain't going to think of it. So just stay there, you know. And stage, I mean, you know, after you do stand-up for a while, if you're a real stand-up, it becomes your sanctuary. You know, the stage is home. I mean, like when Chappelle went through all of the things he went through, when he came back and he did the Inside the Actors Studio and he talked about getting back on stage and being like, ah, okay, I'm home now. Like, that's that's how a comic feels. So whatever's going on off stage doesn't matter when you're on stage. You know, it's, it's uh, 
I've gone on stage under all kind of circumstances, um, tragic circumstances or whatever. But once you get on stage, you do what you do. Although you're always willing to drop the act. And yeah, then. yeah, because if something happens in the moment, you have to acknowledge it, right? You, you have to. I mean, like 9-11 was a time when we all did that, you know, when we, because my experience with 9-11 was airplanes couldn't fly, so bookers were calling around, and you were doing shows that you could drive to, you know, so somebody else might have been booked, but they're like, well, so-and-so can't come in from, you know, Miami, so you got to just drive and do it. And but it was a and you talk about an elephant in the room. We all had like the biggest thing in America going on and you had to somehow be funny at the time. And it wasn't it wasn't like it was miraculous or anything, but we all found different ways to deal with it. But as a comic, you have to deal with it. And then when we started flying and it, it I was like it was great because we were the only ones at the airport. I remember bumping into Doug Stanhope, <laughs> and it was like we were each on a plane that had like three people. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, this, we could fly like this all the time, you know? So you deal with whatever's going on. That's yeah. our job. No, I remember I, would, I actually ended up emceeing at the Tempe Improv that weekend, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what to do because I was the first person to go up on stage. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? And yeah. I think I, I came up with it. Anti-Arab material worked well <laughs> for that week. I think I ended up going with a what would Snoop Dogg do. There you go. Yeah, we all found something. Found something. But but I remember uh, Dan Murr and Howard Polins were running the club back yeah. then. And I think they ended up getting Dennis Regan because he was still around from the, right. from the week before yeah. working with Brian. And mm -hmm. called on people. Who's in L.A. who can drive? Yeah, him? I was in Vegas because... Uh, I don't know who couldn't do it, but I could drive to Vegas, so I was covering for somebody. I don't even remember who. But then the first time I met you was at that Tempe Improv a few years later when you were doing Last Comic. Yeah, well, that was my favorite club, you know, for a long time. The Tempe Improv was without a doubt my favorite club, so. Have you been since it's been revived? Only once. I was supposed to go... One year I was supposed to go, and they had, like, redone the whole club, and the roof started leaking, so they had to shut it down again. So oh, I lost my week to a roof leak in Phoenix. What are the odds of that? <laughs> you know, but uh, not good. it's not the same, but it's still cool. still a great club. What, well, what, what I remember about that first week with you, you and Gary were co-headlining. Yeah, and Jay London was opening. With Jay London mm -hmm. opening, and it was during season three. Yeah. And they had you come in. For Thursday through Sunday, that was it was electric. It was yeah, it was it was. I loved that because we were so busy, the energy was crazy high because we were on TV. Like people would watch us work Thursday through Sunday, and then I do I'd be working on material that weekend and do it on TV Tuesday. I loved that, and um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun. Now what what happened? personally for you out of that last comic experience well you, you it was talk my about, it was my introduction to america plain and simple i mean you we were on prime time tv there were millions of people watching us and um it made everything bigger you know you had bigger crowds and and uh, more fans and suddenly you went from being a road comic that people didn't know that thought were funny to all of america seeing you now you know, and then the hard thing is to keep it. We, I was able to sustain it for a couple of years, but I couldn't get another big shot like that, so I wasn't able to sustain it career-wise. 
Well, I've had people tell me since the last comic is on the air now, there's some detractors who say, well, nobody's really been able to do anything out of out of Amy that. Schumer did all right. But it, <laughs> Amy's done all right. You yeah, know? They, they promised no, the development the, deals. and No, well, it wasn't. But see, that's not... There's reasons for that, but no, they didn't right. develop anybody. They didn't develop a show for anybody from Last Comic Standing. But part of that is an internal thing in NBC because NBC has a reality division and a scripted division, and scripted doesn't like reality because they lose time to it. You know, in other words, you're both fighting for those three hours of prime time from eight to eleven. So if there's a reality show on, scripted doesn't get to go. So they're not. They don't want one of the stars from reality. You know, but it was. Listen, a lot of people had a lot of problems with Last Comic Standing. I'm not one of them. They looked for dirt. They interviewed people. They wanted people to trash the show. They wanted people to trash Jay Moore or Barry Katz or whatever. I had a great experience. I didn't have any inside edge. I, w I wasn't signed with Barry or anything like right. that. I w appeared on it for two seasons. I was a judge for another season, and I had a great time, made a lot of money, and got health insurance. So I got no beef with Last Comic. People look for reasons to trash it. Oh, well. You know, Heffron made a great uh, post a few weeks ago. He said, isn't it funny how many people who trashed Last Comic 10 years ago are doing it now? Yeah, everybody, you know, everybody wants a piece so, of that pie. Yeah. But, I, but I, I'm more asking, you know, you mentioned about being a new face back when it really yeah. was a huge deal. Mm -hmm. So that was 97. And then Last Comic, 2000. Five. 2004, th 2005. Yeah. Now it's 2015. What do you what do you kind of look for in 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 your career? What do you? I don't, man. I work. I don't. I'm not looking for any look. Like the network sitcom is the, the lottery. We're in the lottery business, and that is a lottery hit. You know, people are like, why don't you have a TV show? I'm not like I'm turning them down, <laughs> you know. You did but, Californication. But I did a couple of shows here and there, but to get, like, Billy Gardell is a great example. Billy's right. a friend of mine. Now, Billy's a comic. He'd been on the road for however many years, and he got guest spots on this show and that show, you know, and um, Chuck Lorre liked him. Chuck Lorre had used him, and then they wrote Mike and Molly, and, and he got on Mike and Molly with Melissa McCarthy, right, and then Melissa blew up doing movies, but she stayed on the TV show, and now the show's in syndication, and Billy's rich, and he's set, and his family's good, and that, that's the lottery. Because other times you get a show, Cristela Alonzo, a great comic, right? She was on a show, it was one season. She may get another shot, she may not, I don't know. You know, that's, that's the business. I've hosted a few cable shows. I joked with Aisha Tyler. I said, Aisha, what's it like to do season two? I've never had a season two. I've, I've had four season ones, never a season two. And she says, season two is good. She said, it gets good after season two. So I don't know, man. It, it is what it is. Well, the, in the story with Billy, the remarkable thing about the Billy Gardell story is that, as he's told me in the past, he was a he was this close to quitting. He was going to leave L.A. and, and go, go back go to Pittsburgh. And do morning radio in yep. Pittsburgh mm -hmm. and just be yeah. that guy. Mm -hmm. So how do you... Other than just, or is it is just as simple as just keep working? You got, what else are you going to do? What else are you going to do? What are you going to give Hollywood an ultimatum? Make me a star this year or I quit. Okay. But what else are you going to do but keep working? Right. You know, now I look at guys like I mentioned George Wallace, uh, Dom Herrera. I still look to those guys. You know why? Because they're still doing it. 
and they've had good careers. They haven't had that major shot that, you know, made them a household name, but they're great comics. Other comics love and respect them, and they've made a good living. So that's, that's who you become. That's what you do. Like, you know, there's, I have friends who are worth tens of millions of dollars, but then I also have friends who would love to be where I'm at. I remember talking to Tommy about it once. I said, man, I'd love to be you. And Tommy was like, yeah, well, I would love to be Martin. You're right. always striving for more. It's always somebody who's got it, you know. Right. So what's uh, so what are your hopes and dreams now? Um, I'm doing two. I have one pilot that I did. And I hope they pick that up. I'm shooting another pilot presentation this week. I got a Showtime special coming out next year, and and I'm working. I, I don't. I again, I don't sit back saying, "Man, I'm going to get a sitcom or I'm going to star in a movie." It's just. I don't think in those terms. Some people do, but I just work. You know? what's, the, what's the last great advice someone gave you? Years ago, somebody told me, no one's responsible for making you famous. And that, because I've never been a big marketing guy. And I was like, man, I wish you had told me that 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Uh, and what's the first thing you tell these young pups who come to you? Uh, write. Keep writing. Keep writing. And I tell them now, you have to learn marketing. You have to, because when I did it, at least there was some help from like morning radio and this and that. Now, they expect you to do the whole thing and come in with social media and 50,000 followers. So if you're a kid starting out now, you have to learn marketing. And what if you're in a a trusty old dog like yourself. Do you, do you need we to learn working. that stuff? Or? We keep no, We do some. I do some of it. I do some social networking. My fans are a little older than a Twitter crowd, so it doesn't help me as much. But you you work. So that's all we do, man. We, you know, the, a few weeks ago, Jeremy Hotz, who's a great comic and a great friend of mine, we were talking. We're like, you know something? At the end of the day, I think he's 50, I'm 53, and we're both on the main show at the Laugh Factory. So we're doing something right because we're still relevant to that point. You know what I mean? A lot of guys aren't, you know, right. but I'm not on cruise ships full time yet. I'm not. A, you know what I mean? That's that's real. Like I'm still in the game. So I keep working. Well, Alonzo Bowden, I uh, I don't want to keep you from that. And I know they're about to introduce you for another show. So Liz is here. It's time to go to work. Yeah. Nah, so it's time to go. It's up. time to go to work. So thanks for. Thanks All for right, taking Sean. some time. Thank you. Appreciate man. it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.